is 10.09 in the morning, Mountain Time, 9.09 Pacific Time, on your Monday, October 9th, 2017. Have a very special guest today. This is, in fact, the LDS Light Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams. If you want to email me, please go ahead and do so. Kevin W. at LDSLightPodcast.com. That's Kevin W. at LDSLightPodcast.com. And uh, join the Facebook page. Uh, whenever there's an update on my podcast, I'll put it on Facebook. And I promise you, later this month, early next month, I will be on Twitter. Um, so that'll be good. A lot of people say, oh, you need to get on Twitter. Well, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm just really busy right now, but I think things are going to settle down come November. Uh, certainly uh, the end of this month as well. Broadcasting from my Kevin Cave, this is the LDS, Podca- the LDS Live Podcast. Peter Wolf is my guest. How are you, Peter? I'm doing great, Kevin. Good. And uh, just so people know, he, uh, him and I met because I am a ham radio operator, and him and I met on what's called the Western Reflector. Now, I don't want to get too technical here. I don't even understand reflectors all that much. But basically what it is, is it's uh, a whole network of repeaters that are hooked up to the Internet, uh, the Western Reflector. It's a whole bunch of repeaters that are hooked up to a server in Las Vegas. And uh, you can also get it on Echolink, which is an application that you download on your phone, and you can access it that way as well. I don't remember the ID, but that's probably irrelevant for the podcast, but just so you know how it works. And uh, we had a really good conversation about politics, didn't we? We sure did. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, he recommended, I told him about the podcast, and he recommended that I read a book, and I did. It was very fascinating, called Because I Can. Now, Because I Can was written by a person named Paul Cooper. Paul Cooper has been uh, the writer of many films, and he has also received an Emmy Emmy Award, three Emmy Awards. He's also written uh, books or films. He's also been a screenwriter for after-school specials, such as uh, dealing with things such as race, incest, alcoholism, and uh, all kinds of things. I'll bet these uh, some of those after-school specials I remember as a kid were actually pretty heartwarming. I don't know if you saw any. They were from uh, CBS. And he's also written some films for the Animal Channel, Disney, and HBO. So he's been... uh, pretty well known. Now, how did you uh, meet in, meet uh, Paul Cooper in 1995? I met Paul because he had turned, I think, 40 years old and found that his writing skills were not needed as much as they used to be. Mm-hmm. And he came to me when I ran a company called Job Search here in Thousand Oaks. Oh, and he was looking for a job, and we hit it off very well and stayed friends for, even now, we're still friends, uh, 20 years later, I guess. Oh, great. Well, yeah. it and, was a uh, great... Oh, go ahead. And anyway, uh, when he became more familiar with uh, what I, my background, he asked whether he could interview me, just like you've asked, and then he wrote a book about me great book by the way we are going to get into it by the way just uh, real quick paul cooper ran, won an emmy award for i'm going to murder this i'll spell it out h-u-m-a-n-i-t-a-s humanits yeah humanits pride and he also wrote uh the scripts for shows such as highway to heaven murder she wrote 
and Little House on the Prairie. Thought I'd get that information out right away. And let's uh, talk about your childhood. It was pretty dramatic. I, the question I have for you, probably an odd question, but I, I, could, I cannot comprehend, and I know we talked about this off the podcast, but let's talk about it on the podcast. Why was the sewer system so messed up in East Germany? You would think, after World War II, and before they went communism and all that, they would have at least fixed the sewer system. I can't imagine... Uh, going to the bathroom in a toilet with rats, that would creep me out. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty bad, but it was pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Of course, uh, with all the bombing that had gone on during the Second World War, all that infrastructure was uh, damaged severely where sewers were broken uh, underground. So rats would proliferate and would get into the sewer system and even to this day I believe they are still protecting people in apartments and so on uh, from those rats they now have a system where the uh, toilet has an automatic uh, shut off type of thing similar to what you see in a in an airplane uh, where there's a little flap Uh, but one time when I lived there it was pretty severe and you had to always put a bucket of water with a on top of a wooden board or toilet seat to cover it up completely so that when rats would come up they have no place to go except back down and of course when you uh, use the toilet and you heard gurgling noises <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially the men, uh, I think, would be extremely concerned. And um, you know, many times I jumped up, and no rats ever came out while I was sitting on it. But uh, you always were aware of that. Here's the question I have, though: After the fall of communism in East Germany, you would think uh that the government would fix that problem now that the money would probably be better managed and things like that well it's very expensive and to fix something like that uh, takes an awful lot of effort i mean they can't dig up every sewer which they would almost have to dig up mm-hmm. so it 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 was a major, major problem and apparently is still an issue today. But uh, it's controlled to the point where it's not a problem for people living there. You know, they took measures to, to keep it a, not What to about be a uh, West Germany? Is it a problem in West Germany or not? Or do you know? I don't know. I suspect it's not. Okay. Well, okay, so I I really want to get on another topic, but I have to stay on this for a little bit. Since the sewer system was broken, did you ever just randomly walk by somewhere and smell a bunch of sewage under the ground or something? Because I lived in a town, uh, Ontario, Oregon, and I'm not kidding, they had uh, open sewer ponds. This was back in the 80s. I'm surprised they got away with it. But they had an open sewer pond. Oddly enough... During the winter, it was never during the summer, but during the winter, the wind would blow, and you could really smell the sewer pond. 
No, we never had an issue like that. The that I remember, the only place where there was um, there were some swamps in the area near near where I lived, where the bombing had been particularly heavy, and they actually had quicksand and things of that nature. So it was all fenced off. But I think that's all has been taking care of it at this point. This was back in the 50s. Yeah. Well, back uh, back in the 50s, when you were in East Germany living there, it sounded like from your book you had an epiphany. You had to do some homework. Actually, you wanted to go in, or you went in and you wanted to go out and play, and your sister scolded you for not, uh, uh, not peeling the potatoes like you were supposed to, and your dad pretty much defended you, and then you were your dad said it was time to do your homework and so you went and read Uncle Tom's Cabin um, and then your dad was upset because you were told in school that you had um, you had sla- you, that uh, Americans were doing slavery and your dad said no that was a hundred years ago and I know you really enjoyed playing soccer now my question to you is this because I, when I was a kid, uh, things were pretty innocent. My mom was telling me once that I could entertain people for about an hour and a half, two hours if I had to. Because I was really into radio and things like that even as a kid. I used to do pretend radio shows. One of them, and I can tell you how I got the name at some point, was Cracker to Cracker. And basically, it was just a talk show where I'd pretend that people were calling in and we'd talk about whatever. And as I became older and read things about what was going on in society, and as I became more aware of things, I became more serious about things and less entertaining and more of, uh, I don't know if this is a word, but if it's not, I'll make it up, of an informer. I felt like I needed to inform people. If that's not a word, I just coined it. How's that? Um... Did you feel that way? Did you feel like you had a sense of uh, obligation to inform people and you took life a little bit more seriously when you had that conversation with your dad? Because I would have. Um, Over there at that time, you pretty much had to keep things to yourself. There was... um, you certainly didn't have any freedom of expression or freedom of speech. You couldn't write what you wanted to write. You needed to be very careful if you wrote poetry or anything else. Um, if it was derogatory towards communism, you could be punished. So typically people kept to themselves. As a matter of fact, neighbors and others spied upon each other trying to get an edge and favoritism from the local police and what have you and would report suspicious activities whether that involved listening to a forbidden radio program or western music Um, people were very much, they very much lived in fear 
and did not go outside their immediate family very often to tell anybody anything. You didn't do that because you never knew who you were talking to and who might report you to the local police. Yeah, so how hard was it to keep that secret? And I guess another question I have is, did you... Was it harder to play with your friends after that? Maybe is a better question, because you do something they didn't, but yet you couldn't talk about it. Was it harder to play soccer and things like that? Because I would always have that on my mind. No. Uh, when I read that Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was mandatory reading, and we were told and indoctrinated in school that that was the lifestyle in America, that America was a very oppressed society, that everybody lived similar to the people that were portrayed in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which of course showed a lot of uh, oppression and uh, poor living standards, and that anything else we would hear about America was simply false propaganda. And that is pretty much what everybody believed, including myself, even though my father said otherwise. So at that point, it sounded like in the book, from what I've read, you kind of had this... uh what we call in psychology cognitive dissonance theory, where your mind and your heart were not in sync. Is that how you kind of felt? You weren't sure who to believe. You believed. You were told all this time, oh, America's crappy. America's this. And now here your dad's telling you different. It sounds like you had some cognitive dissonance theory for a while, which is normal. Of course. Uh, We were always told that our dream as a family was to eventually go to America Mm -hmm. and you know uh, but without going into a lot of detail we were told, I don't remember my dad all that well but um, we were told I was pretty young when he passed away but I was told uh, also by my mother that America is very beautiful And yet in school, it was portrayed as a terrible place to live, uh, that even though some people were extremely rich, the majority were very poor, and the rich were taking advantage of the poor, and that slavery and oppression were rampant. So this is the kind of uh, image that was given to us in school. Wow. And, of course, that's where we got most of our... And, and I, I believed it. I didn't know any different. Well, I, I would have if I was told that, yeah. Yeah. And the only, the only other thing that was fascinating about America is the Indians and cowboys. So there were... Oh, yes. We always played Indians and cowboys. That was a very traditional thing. Anytime there was a holiday where we would dress up of some sort, I would always be an Indian or a cowboy and have uh, guns, you know, on my side. And uh, uh, we would capture others and would pretend that we were playing Indians and cowboys. And that was a very fascinating imagery about America. Mm-hmm. But that was, we were told, a long time ago. Nowadays, America was very oppressed. 
and there were only the rich and the poor, and most people were poor. Wow. Lived in squalor, yeah. That was certainly not true in the 50s. Now, uh, I want to go back to something that you said about neighbors spying on everybody, because you had this uh, neighbor that was clearly a menace to your family, Albert. And uh, he, is, he was certainly a diehard communist. And he, it sounds like he was... Uh, number one, it sounds like he had a thing for your sister. Number two, it sounds like he was out to get not only you, your family, but uh, your sister's crush. I guess they were kind of dating, I guess, uh, Hubert... But do you think that when your dad talked to you about leaving to come to the States, Albert was listening? Because in the book it mentioned that he opened the door right in the middle of that conversation. I don't think he opened the door. I mean, we had privacy in our apartment. People couldn't mm -hmm. just come right in. But, uh, uh, you know, this particular feller, uh, of course the author in the book took some editorial liberties, the way he described certain things, yeah. but there was an individual, uh, his name was not Albert, but uh, he had another name, but... Uh, you don't have to give was if a, you don't want to. No, but he was a very staunch young man, very staunch communist, and we were very fearful of him, you know, extremely fearful, um, because... Uh, people could report you and could make your life very miserable. Mm -hmm. And so you were very cautious who you talked to, what you said. Of course, we still had lots of fun as children, but uh, when it came to politics or other issues about the government, you just, you just didn't say anything, nothing. Yeah, were you ever worried that uh, Albert's mother would report you, or your sister, or anything like that? The only people you could really trust were your own family members, and my mother instilled in us not to say anything, or not to divulge anything when teachers would ask us, you know, what radio programs we might have been listening to, or what newscasts we were listening to, and teachers would routinely ask about that to young children. And there were many of them that would say, oh yeah, you know, my parents listened to music, Western music from West Germany. And sure enough, those parents would be reported and interrogated as to why they're listening to such garbage music and exposing their children to such things. I wonder, as I read that, do you think most of the teachers actually believed what they said, or do you think they were going through the motions? What do you think was going on in their minds? Because some people, some people were very staunch communists, and they believed that that type of government was the best government for the nation. Others, I'm sure felt the hypocrisy and simply went through the motions. But if they did not go through the motions, they themselves would be reported mm -hmm. and probably lose their job. So people lived in fear, real fear, and so did I would, what they were told. 
So I'd imagine uh, typical conversation in East Germany, probably any communist country for that matter. How's the weather? How's your kid? How are you feeling? Probably didn't go anywhere beyond that, did it? It didn't. Yeah, now... And oh, go ahead. The only time it did was when you were in private with people that you knew very well. Uh, there were, but then you, you would talk in hushed tones, or when you listened to the radio, you would turn it down very, very low so that the neighbors could not hear it. Uh, they, I remember seeing billboards of people huddling around, this is after I came to America, of people huddling around a radio, and it was described as Radio Free Europe, and you could see people huddling very close to the radio, it being tuned down very low volume to low volume, and listening to it, and that is exactly how it was. It, 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 it's amazing. You saw these billboards portraying it, and I'm sure most Americans didn't think this isn't really how it is, but that's exactly how it was. You huddled around the radio and carefully listened to broadcasts. Of course, the East Germans, when they realized that important information was emanating from the West through these Radio Free Europe's and so on, they would then cause interference. And there were huge radio towers throughout East Germany that would block any broadcast that they didn't want East Germans to hear, and that included television. So you might be watching a movie, and right in the middle, when it gets most interesting, this movie came from West Germany, when it came really interesting, uh, they would cause the interference to come on, and you couldn't see anything any after that. So it's almost as though someone was uh, running a soundboard on the engine. Yep. Or something, exactly. watching it. Wow. You know, yeah, I think... Uh -huh, they, oh, would in, they would uh, make people mad. You know, and it was almost like somebody uh, had got a kick out of it or something. It, it was perverted. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and, uh, you know, did, were they doing that in the mid-80s as well, late 80s? Because I have a story about that, actually. I don't know what happened later on. I'm only, uh, I can only tell you what happened in the 1950s. Well, because I know on shortwave radio stations, the communist governments, Russia and others, would in fact run, like you said, an engine. But the truth is, when you do that on shortwave, it goes all over the world. And I think, because I had a shortwave radio back in uh, 1989, and I think I heard some of that, because I would tune to a frequency. It did sound like a really loud engine, so I'm wondering if some of that was going on back then. Well, they had huge interference towers... Yeah, in in the uh, in East Germany, yeah, very very common. So did they? Uh, I don't want to get too far, but did the uh, governments ever talk to each other about it? And the U.S. said, "Hey, you better knock this off because it's affecting people over here as well," or something like that. Yeah, I think it was pretty directional. It was pretty directional. It would just blast all over into uh, East Germany. I think they were they were keeping it from going into the West. So maybe I was hearing something different. Anyway, 
Uh, speaking of which, though, you talked about, uh, the book talks about these uh, leaflets. I didn't even know what a leaflet was. I had to look it up. It's a little tiny paper with uh, things. It's kind of like a post-it note almost, would you say? Uh, a little bit larger, maybe okay. a half sheet, uh, eight and a half by 11 half sheet. Okay. And it was usually printed on the front and the back. Uh, and balloons would come over, uh, hot air balloons or, you know, uh, helium balloons. They would send these over and of course they couldn't be detected by radar and then at some point these leaflets would would disperse and they would fly and look like snowflakes almost uh, come down and it was propaganda by the west informing the east what's going on how effective were those leaflets, as strict as uh, the country was? Because you really, I remember your, didn't your dad or somebody burn a, f a lot of them in the fire, but you kept one or something like that? Well, we were told to pick up those leaflets and take them to school or to the police or to the authorities and the not take them to your parents or if you did, that they were to destroy them. And then a day or two after, we were questioned about uh, how, uh, how we disposed of these leaflets and did any parents read them and so on. So the teachers would question us. And of course, I would always say we destroyed them or I didn't even pick them up. And, and yet I did, and try to read them and understand them. But typically it was a little bit beyond me. I was maybe 12, 13 years old at the time. Yeah. So I was a little bit young to understand a lot of the politics. But um, I know a lot of people took them, read them, kept them, but they did it in a very secret way. Yeah, I, I, you talked about uh, the teacher quizzing you and grilling you about how long were you silent? Because you said that you were silent for a while before you just lied about the leaflet and said, no, we destroyed them. How long was that silence, do you think? I don't remember exactly. I think the author, again, you know, he took some editorial liberties to make the book interesting. Yeah, uh, which is fine. So, uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, another thing that you mentioned that I found interesting, Joseph Stalin. They had a sculpture of Joseph, Stal Joseph Stalin in your class. And do you find, Did you ever find out why they took that down? Well, at, some, at one point, Stalin was pronounced to be a uh, villain to his people, uh, just like other leaders in the Communist Party. And I believe it was under... Khrushchev's reign that Stalin was declared to be a uh, a villain towards his people that he committed a lot of atrocities and we of course know that he did uh, perhaps even worse than Hitler himself uh, in terms of killing the number of killings that he uh, he saw too actually there's so, speculation more Christians were killed under him than Jews I have heard under right. more Christians were killed under Stalin than Jews under Hitler. Not that it right. was right, but interesting. But he was notation. very, uh, yeah, he was very 
just a very brutal ruler. But anyway, uh, when the uh, statue was, when he was declared to be a bad person, his statue then was removed from the school place where, where they normally have these statues. And I helped the teacher carry it down into the basement. And interestingly enough, there I saw Hitler's statue and various other people that had gone by in the past that were hailed as heroes and now were diminished down into the basement. It almost so. reminds me of the book 1984 where they vaporized people, <laughs> if you've read that book. You bet. Now, uh, I want to go back to the, uh, and I, I want to cover some other topics real quick, but I want to go back to the uh, listening to things on the radio. Because I would imagine, I don't know how, but I would imagine some people were successful at sneaking the shortwave radios over to East Germany, although it kind of defeated the purpose once those loud engines were running and things like that on the shortwave frequencies. But you do talk about, I guess uh, you and your father were getting ready to play a checkers game and your father was screaming and yelling at the radio because they changed, they were changing the currency on Friday. And this was on a Monday, I guess, and you had till Friday to change the, to get your things exchanged. Now, do you think that they were changing the currency because they knew people were saving up to maybe escape, or do you think there was an agenda? What do you think was going on there? Any idea? Yes, the um, many people were saving their money to um, in secret to use it for various purposes. Let me explain some of the purposes. First of all, you had socialized medicine. And everyone pretty much received free medical care. However, under that system, the medical care that you received was absolute minimal. In other words, they kept you alive, they made you well, if possible, they hospitalized you and so on if necessary. But you got minimal service. If you wanted some more aggressive service, life-saving services, surgeries, what have you, then you had to have money. In other words, you had to pay off the doctors to get that extra service or you had to be a prominent member in the Communist Party. So a lot of people saved up their money and in secret, because you were only allowed to save a certain amount uh, and otherwise you had to forfeit it or you had to uh, contribute it back to the government. So uh, in order to stop people from saving money secretly, the government at some point announced that on a Sunday the currency would change and people virtually had no time to buy anything of value with that older money. And once the currency changed, now they did they could send it, give it into the uh, their local bank, 
But if it was more than a certain amount, the bank would just simply, you would forfeit, forfeit some of it because you were not allowed to save more than a certain amount of money. So once the government announced that there would be a change of currency, all the people that had saved that money in secret would lose it all. And people had saved a lot to either use it for escaping or getting better services for medical purposes or whatever. And people lost it all. It was a devastating, devastating time. I believe that happened around 1955. Did they do this on, because I would think, well, maybe not, but I would think people would, you know, the, okay, the currency's changing, we'll just save up money again, but then it, you know, I guess you were only allowed to carry a certain amount of cash on you after that, but did, was this an ongoing thing? Were they constantly changing the currency? No, I only remember it happening one time, and I think what happened, a lot of people lost so much hope at that point. And because, you know, if you lose everything overnight that you worked so hard for it to obtain, you get so discouraged and you lose a lot of hope. Yes. And I think people finally resigned themselves that this was just the way life was going to be and they couldn't do anything about it. So people lived in fear and they lost hope. And that's exactly what the government wanted. Do you think that there were some people who somehow were able, obviously your mother did, we'll get into that here shortly, uh, do you think that there were people who just saved a bunch of uh, currency, put it under their floorboards or whatever after that, and tried to make things work, tried to escape and things like that? Well, of course, people continued to escape, and people you know, try to uh, do whatever they could, but a lot of people resigned themselves and just accepted their fate and said, this is my lot in life to live into in this under this government and let's make the best of it. Now, uh, yeah, I, w I do want to get into escaping here. Uh, your mother did a very brave thing. I, I wouldn't have thought of it. Uh, I'm surprised she pulled this off. There, were def there was definitely divine intervention. I don't question that one bit. Uh, going, you know, acting like she was sick at one of the police stations and insisting that her passport was changing, the code was changing. Because your sister, I don't know how she escaped. She did somehow and was able to come to the States. So now the, your mom's passport had a certain code on it. What did your mom do? She burnt part of it or something? The passport? Got the code written off, so she insisted on getting a new passport and had a new code. Well, what she did, we went to... We lived in one town, and then there was a larger city nearby, Leipzig. And we went to the larger city, and prior to that, she had spilled ink on her passport or her paperwork, and then uh, tried to wash it off, and then burned it off. And she did that on a weekend when the local police was closed. You know, the local department that would handle this paperwork in the local town was closed. And she, w she went to the larger city 
away from our small town and then lamented to the people there that she needed to get this paperwork replaced because she wanted to travel on Christmas Eve to her loved ones that lived a certain distance away and without paperwork you couldn't travel. So um, she had destroyed the markings on her paperwork by pouring ink on it and then trying to dry it off over the gas burner by accidentally burning it and of course it wasn't accidental it was on purpose so basically her paperwork was destroyed and she wanted the new paperwork and she went a long distance away and insisted to get new paperwork even temporary paperwork and she knew that they couldn't call the local police station to find out that she was under a watch to keep her away from the border at all cost. If she were ever caught near the border, she would immediately go to prison. This was as a consequence of my 16-year-old sister at the time escaping to, to West Germany. And she was basically, my mother was labeled a traitor to the state. Uh, there were consequences after my sister left and didn't come back uh, to East Germany. Uh, the consequences were that my mother was given very, very difficult work assignments where she worked. She would make tents, sew tents for the Russian soldiers, huge tents, heavy tents. Uh, very difficult work assignments. She would also... Um, uh, be given less food privileges, less travel privileges. One of those constraints was she was not to go near the border within 20 miles of any border, whether it was in Berlin or West Germany. If she was caught, she would immediately go to prison and I would be put in an orphanage. Those were the consequences. Very likely she would have gone to one of the gulags in Russia. She would have been sent Oh. to one of the gulags in Russia. Punishment was severe, very severe. Um, my schooling was constrained where I would, I was about 12 or 13 years old at the time. I had another year to go in grammar school and that would have been the end of my schooling. I would have become an apprentice at some factory and that would have been my lot in life and this was all a consequence to my sister leaving the country and my mother not keeping more control over my sister, basically. So our future was very dim and very dismal. And for my mother to forge the paperwork was a great, great risk. And when she got new paperwork after lamenting to these officers and throwing a tantrum um, in the uh, city away from our city. They eventually did give her some temporary paperwork, but she didn't know whether that temporary paperwork included any of the constraints, any of these symbols that constrained her to go anywhere near a border. So she simply hoped that it didn't contain those constraints. But yeah, she was a very brave woman. Oh, Extremely. gosh, yeah. 
Now, I do have uh, one question before I want to get... It looks like we're going to do a part two of this podcast, because we haven't even touched your conversion story to the church or any of that, so we'll do that on a part two. Right. Because I know you're busy. But um, how did people escape East Germany? Because I'm sure that... I, I would imagine after they changed the currency and all, it was pretty much a done deal. You were there. Uh, so how did people escape East Germany once the Berlin Wall came up, and especially in the 70s and 80s? How, how would people have escaped, or was that even possible? After the Berlin Wall came up in 1961, it was virtually impossible to escape. Prior to the wall going up, there were many people who lived in East Germany, in particularly in East Berlin and they had employment in West Berlin and they would have special permits to go back and forth on the subway between East Berlin and West Berlin Uh, similarly there were people that lived in West Berlin and they would commute to East Berlin and work there and then commute in the evening back to West Berlin. So there was a travel permission under special circumstances to go back and forth between the East and the West in Berlin. The border between East Germany and West Germany was pretty solid. There was no passing there. But people were given permissions to go by subway. So what a lot of people tried to do is they went to Berlin and then got on a subway to go to, uh, often they bought a ticket that took them into some other portion of East Berlin, but there was one stop where the subway stopped in the West Berlin sector. And this is where they got off. And that is how many people escaped. This was prior to the wall going up. After the wall went up, that subway was completely shut off. There was no more communication, I mean, no more transportation between East and West in in Berlin. Everything was just completely blocked. And people devised various other means of escaping. You know, you've heard of hot air balloons uh, drifting over the border and things of that. But this was after the wall went up. Prior to the wall going up, uh, you could still travel between east and west under special, with special permission. Yeah, so do you think that there were people, once the wall went up, that actually escaped and got away with it? And how did they? It sounds like the answer was probably no. Uh, People tried, and people, of course, were shot dead in their attempt to uh, to escape a good movie to uh, watch is the uh, the bridge of spies i think it's called the bridge of spies is depicts the conditions before and after the wall went up it actually shows the wall being built it is a fascinating movie and when i first my wife thought it would be interesting for me to see and when i first went and saw it, I got so emotional, I almost walked out of the movie. I was crying like a little kid. I just couldn't control myself. And And rightfully uh, so. 
Yeah, and and it even showed the same train station where I where we escaped from in the subway, uh, and it looked like I was there again. It was just even now talking about it, it just gets very emotional to me. But anyway, yeah. uh, uh, that's a good movie to 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 see what the conditions were like there. Mm-hmm. What was and the movie called? It's called The Bridge of Spies. The Bridge oh, okay. of Spies. It's a fairly recent movie. It's Tom Hanks, I believe, is in it. And oh, so okay. it's a very well-done movie. Let's talk about... Uh, okay, so you get over here, you're excited, but then uh, people make fun of you because people have family members. I guess where you were at in Chicago was predominantly Jewish, I guess. Well, I think prior to that, I'd like to oh, go ahead. explain how I escaped. I oh yeah, people oh, would okay, be go ahead. Uh, would be interested in that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so my mother, you know, and I on um, Christmas Eve of 1959, December 24th, I was playing downstairs with my friends, and uh, went up for lunch when I noticed there was a suitcase. Uh, partially packed up on my mother's bed. And I was curious because I didn't know we were planning to go anywhere. My mother was busily uh, working in the uh, apartment, cleaning, scrubbing the floor, and tidying things up. And she said, look, uh, Peter, tonight we are leaving. We're going away from here. I want you to go back downstairs after you have lunch and say goodbye to your friends. You won't ever see them again. Be sure not to say anything about our intentions of leaving. So I did. I went downstairs, played with them a little bit more after lunch, said goodbye to them, and that's the last time I saw them. I went upstairs again. My mother told me to pack up one of my toys and in the suitcase, my favorite toy, I packed up a little train set, electric train, and then she closed up the suitcase. The entire apartment was still intact. You know, there was no um, sale or garage sale or anything of that nature. Nobody knew. No one knew that we were leaving not a soul and that evening Christmas Eve we left through the alleyway Christmas Eve was one of those holidays that the communists allowed to celebrate it was a Christian holiday obviously and one of the very few normally uh, uh, Christian holidays and any kind of Christian religious uh, event was forbidden. Church, you were discouraged and forbidden to go to. If you did, consequences again would be severe. So anyway, uh, we left with nothing more than our clothes on our back and the little suitcase. We went to the local train station, uh, uh, actually a streetcar, which took us to the nearest town where we picked up a train. And then we traveled to Berlin where we got on the subway. And once my mother got on the subway, it was a point of no return because if she were 
caught on that subway with paperwork that indicated that she uh, was not allowed to be there, it would have meant immediate prison for her and an orphanage for me. The punishment was made very clear to us that it would be very severe and very swift. So once she got on that subway, we had bought a ticket to go into the into East Berlin, uh, but there was one stop in West Berlin. So we got on the subway, and the stop prior to the West Berlin station, the doors opened, and uh, uh, Russian soldiers came on board. There was a Russian soldier in the back of the train car and one in front, both with machine guns. And then a Russian sergeant came on board um, who interrogated all the people and looked at their paperwork that were sitting on the train. There weren't all that many people there. There was a young couple in front of us that sat, and he looked at their paperwork and eventually gave it back to them, and they smiled at each other and gave a big sigh of relief. And he looked back on his way towards us and mumbled in Russian, I wonder why they are so happy and have such a relief. And I spoke fluent Russian, and I understood what he was mumbling. And he had asked me, he said, Baruski, do you speak Russian? And I said, da. Now, my mother had instructed me not to say a word. Whatever happened, not to say a word. And here I start speaking Russian with that Russian soldier. Oh, no. And my mother was holding my hand and would squeeze my hand to the point where it really hurt. But she was petrified. Not only did I speak to this Russian guy, but I spoke in Russian, which she didn't understand. <laughs> so you can imagine the panic yeah. that struck her, okay? Anyway, I started speaking to this guy, and he said, what do you think, why do you think these people are so happy here that I just interrogated this young couple? And I said, I don't know. And he says, well, we better find out. And he waved out to one of his... Uh, comrades and told them to escort them outside they never got back on the train I suspect they never came anywhere near Berlin again but anyway he walked over and then asked my mother for her paperwork and she gave it to him and he kept talking to me in Russian in the meantime I told him I had a pen pal in Russia which I did in Moscow and he questioned why I spoke so good Russian and I said I learned it in school it was mandatory and he complimented me and eventually gave the paperwork back to my mother and continued on. Of course, neither my mother or I looked at each other and gave a big sigh of relief. We knew what happened to the other couple. So uh, eventually the Russian soldier interrogated some other people and he left. The other soldiers in the front and the back with the machine guns, they left. The cars, the doors closed, and we went on to the next station, which was West Berlin. At the very last moment, 
at that West Berlin station before the doors closed, my mother grabbed me and the suitcase and we snuck out. And the doors closed and the train moved on and we were in West Berlin now. That is an interesting story. Do you think that you knowing Russian saved your life then? I can only hope it did. You know, I don't know. But uh, my mother scolded me heavily for speaking to the guy when I, she told me not to. And um, you don't know why you do certain things at times, but uh, hopefully uh, that made that Russian soldier less in inquisitive, you know, perhaps. Well, so anyway, uh, uh, there was a kiosk. Here's an interesting thing. There was a kiosk oh, yeah. in the uh, train station, and I had some money that I had saved up, a few uh, East German pennies, and I went to the kiosk, and I purchased two items. Now, maybe, I think I, it may be mentioned in the book, but the two items were like gold to me. Um, one of them was a banana. I've never eaten a banana before, so I purchased a banana. And then the other item I purchased was like gold, its own weight in gold in East Germany, and that was bazooka bubblegum. It was illegal for anyone to own or chew chewing gum in East Germany because it was considered to be too westernized. So every now and then we would sneak in some chewing gum from packages that may have come from the West or from America, from relatives. And I could bargain and um, barter almost anything for chewing gum among my friends, especially bazooka bubble gum, you know, with the little cartoons inside, if you remember. So uh, anyway, that was a, um, those were the very first purchases, and I'm still partial to bazooka bubble gum and bananas. I still love them. But then we went upstairs, uh, we saw a police officer and asked him for directions where to go to, uh, because we had just escaped and he directed us to a certain location. And then our ordeals actually started uh, we stayed in West Berlin for about two or three months, and uh, there's some interesting stories that can be said about that, but I think we're running out of time here. Yeah, we'll definitely do a part two podcast, because I definitely want to get into your conversion story. I definitely want to talk about the temple in Freiburg, get your opinion on that, because that's an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, so we'll definitely, I'll definitely have you back on. Um, we do have just a little bit of time left. Do you want to briefly talk about your conversion story real quick? Well, uh, it probably is better in context of what happened. 
Uh, okay. You know, in the uh, when I came to America and where I came from, but there's quite a bit of interesting material still left of okay. what transpired in West Berlin. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely do a part two podcast then. And uh, you know, and then uh, you know, in my trip across the Atlantic uh, to uh, to America, seeing the statue.